Thank you for joining us for Sound Reasoning with Christian apologist and minister Perseus Poku of Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's program will educate, train, and empower you to defend your Christian faith with confidence. Perseus has his bachelor's in history and a master's degree in apologetics. We hope you enjoy this time of equipping so that you can answer questions to defend your Christian faith effectively. Now here's Perseus Poku on Sound Reasoning. Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I'm your host, Perseus Poku. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 3, tells us, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Uh, verses 3 through 6. And that reminds me of the state that we are living in, uh, in terms of our nation and in terms of uh, what's going on globally. Uh, as we as Christians uh, read the word and as, as we gain insights and as our worldview develop based on uh, biblical principles, we have to come to the realization that God has called all of us to go out and spread the good news. And in doing so, we will soon realize that not everyone believes what we believe. And we assume in many cases that those that say they believe in God uh, b- believe in Jesus, the son, which is not true. So we all have different worldviews. And as Christians, uh, many of us have been to Sunday school and we read on different topics, Jonah, Moses, and uh, even Adam, the progenitor of the human race. So today we have a special treat. Uh, there's a book that's been written, and I find it very fascinating. It's entitled, Who Was Adam? And the author is Dr. Uh, Fazil Rana, and uh, he is the vice president of research and apologetics at Reason to Believe. And he's also the author of several groundbreaking books, including the book that I just mentioned, Who Was Adam? Creating Life in the Lab and the Cell Design, also his compositions. Uh, and uh, Dr. Rana, thank you so much for being on Sound Reasoning today. Hey, it's my pleasure to join you, Perseus. So my first question is... Uh, can you tell us what was the impetus behind this book and why do we entitle it, Who Was Adam? Well, um, you know, a common narrative in our culture today is this idea that human beings evolved, that uh, about six to seven million years ago, some kind of ape-like creature gave rise to an evolutionary lineage that culminated in the emergence of modern humans. And, of course, if that's... Um, the case, it's very difficult, in fact, I would even argue impossible to square that scenario with a biblical account of human origins, namely that all humanity comes from an Adam and an Eve as the first human beings who are created uniquely in God's image through God's direct personal intervention. And I just don't see any way to square that biblical account with the idea of human evolution. And and so the book that we wrote, Who Was Adam?, was in effect a response to the common scientific narrative that, again, human beings evolved. And what we try to do in the book is argue that there's actually a scientific case that can be made 
for the, the legitimacy of the biblical account of human origins, that is, that there really was an Adam and an Eve as the first human beings that gave rise to humanity, and that human beings really are unique uh, compared to all other creatures that have ever existed on the earth. I appreciate that. So please flesh this out for us, uh, for the lay people that are listening in, uh, on the radio, in terms of our view of creation, why does it matter whether someone uh, embraces the textbook explanation of how we got here versus looking at it through what Genesis tells us about how we all came to be? Well, I mean, this is, a, I think, a very important point that you're bringing up, uh, because what we believe about our origins really does matter. Mm. It's not just an academic debate. It really has profound implications, not only in our personal lives, but in uh, society at large. So, for example, if we think that human beings evolved, then at the end of the day, we're uh, the accident of nature. Mm. Uh, we are the product of unguided processes. Mm. Uh, we're just one species among countless of species that have existed. There's nothing special about us whatsoever. And, of course, that completely devalues human life. Uh, it undermines the idea that there's purpose and meaning to our lives, and it means that other human beings don't really have value if, if we don't have value either. And, of course, you can imagine the types of decisions that you would make about your own personal life and your behaviors if that's what you really thought, and let alone what a society would look like if that's what people really thought. In fact, I would even argue many of the social ills that we are so concerned about as Christians today uh, reflect, I think, the fact that we have embraced an evolutionary view of mm -hmm. origins. Now, on the other hand, if you think human beings are the crown of creation, we're made in God's image, we have inherent worth and dignity, all human life has inherent worth and dignity, uh, we're going to behave very differently. We're going to think about ourselves very differently. We're going to think about other people very differently. And so I think it has profound implications, what we think about uh, the question of origins. And to buttress your point, um, here in California, we recently, uh, when I say we, I'm talking about the legislators, uh, recently passed a bill that basically supports doctor-assisted suicide. And it's, it, it's sitting for the governor to sign and, and make it uh actual law. So what you're talking about is really related to our everyday lives, such as the example I just gave. That's exactly right, and that's an excellent example. Uh, because, you know, again, if you take a biblical view of human origins, uh, the idea of physician-assisted suicide is, in a sense, unthinkable. And yet, if you think that human beings evolved, then what difference does it make if uh, physicians assist uh, human beings in, in, you know, in committing suicide. It makes no difference whatsoever. So scientifically speaking, and, and I do appreciate how you unpackage that for us, just so we all are clear, if, if we uh, don't look at our life through uh, the lens of the scriptures, which is also backed up by the, by the science uh, based on your research, then we really... Are, are out of step with a biblical paradigm. Is that what you're telling us? That's exactly right. That's very well stated. 
Okay. So then my next question is, uh, naturalists claim that, uh, as you said, humans evolved from, let's say, cavemen or uh, unsophisticated uh, early primates. Does the evidence, based on your research, support this? Um, in, in short, the answer is no. Now, uh, I think that there were these creatures uh, that we oftentimes or commonly would call cavemen, mm-hmm. uh, creatures like Neanderthals, Homo erectus, Lucy. Um, the scientific term for these uh, creatures would be hominids. I think there is evidence that these creatures existed, but as I come to the table, I look at the fossil record from a biblical lens. And so given that I'm skeptical about human evolution because of what Scripture teaches, uh, I, as I look at these creatures, I would basically argue uh, that these are uh, creatures that God had created that existed for a period of time and then later went extinct. I, mm-hmm. I would think of them in the same way that I would think of uh, the great apes, chimpanzees, orangutans, and gorillas. Fascinating creatures. They had intelligence. They had emotional capability, just like all animals have, but that they didn't have the image of God. Um, that I would argue that that's a property exclusively retained by human beings. And so they do have similarities to us, but all creatures have similarities to us, and I would argue that that reflects common design, not common descent. And when I look at the, the hominid fossil record, it's interesting that even though evolutionary biologists view these creatures as evolutionary intermediates, the fact of the matter is we do not know how to trace an evolutionary pathway from the oldest hominid to modern humans. We, in other words, there are all kinds of missing links or gaps in the fossil record. Nobody knows how these different creatures would have related to each other in evolutionary terms. And it's interesting because every new discovery tends to throw the whole area of human evolution into chaos. Uh, just a, a few days ago, uh, this Homo naledi was announced, this you know, remarkable hominid find. Well, if you read the, the, uh, the headlines, this discovery, again, is rewriting human evolution. So if, if every time a new fossil is discovered, it rewrites human evolution, how secure is this idea to begin with? And so for me, I, I don't think the fossil record supports an evolutionary paradigm. In fact, I think it's possible to make perfect sense of the fossil record from a creationist standpoint. Thank you so much. And, and one of the things that um, I've seen uh, even through uh, my period of growing up in elementary, junior high, and so forth, has been this image of a caveman-like uh, figure uh, prepa- uh, increasingly um, being portrayed in an upright position till it became fully human. Can you tell us where that came from if uh, there hasn't been any link from the hominids to um, the human race as we know it? Well, I mean, that, that you know, image, in a sense, encapsulates the whole idea of human evolution in a nutshell, and it's become kind of iconic, if you will, in our, in our world. Uh, but again, it's essentially a, a question of worldviews, really. People are approaching the, the fossil record from an evolutionary framework. Uh, they've embraced the worldview of naturalism or materialism, where they would have rejected belief in God. And so if you do that, then the only way to explain human origins is that we must have evolved by some mechanistic 
evolutionary process. And so that imagery is as much a manifestation of a worldview as it is essentially an interpretation of, or at least I would say a sound interpretation of scientific facts. I think, again, you can interpret the fossil record from a creation standpoint just as well. Thank you for that. My next question has more to do with the uh, philosophical aspect of of, um, of what's going on. Um, we, when I say we, many of us are bombarded and given only one side of science uh, in terms of naturalism and uh, materialism. And so, my question to you is: How should we, as believers, uh, deal with? Um, the information that we're getting from just the uh, the one side of, of natural science, and and not too many people know about people like yourself who are Christians uh, uh, that follow God and also are scientists and looking at the same records. So, how should the common lay Christian deal with this type of uh, dilemma? Well, you know, to me, I think that the first thing is that we should always be oriented towards this idea that what, what is discovered from science should, at the end of the day, align with our belief as Christians. Because uh, the Bible tells us God has revealed himself to us, not only through his word, but also through the record of nature. And science is the study of nature, and so therefore uh, science should agree with what's in Scripture. The problem is that we have human beings involved, right. and, and human beings are fallible. We make mistakes. We have preconceived notions. We have uh, presuppositions that we bring to the table. Uh, we're fallen people. Uh, we don't want certain things to be true, and we want other things to be true. And because of that, it shapes the way we interpret data. And so my contention is that when you do see conflict between science and Scripture, that conflict is probably a conflict of interpretations, not an actual conflict of what science has discovered and what Scripture has revealed. Uh, likewise, as Christians, we can make mistakes as well right. interpreting Scripture. And so we, we always want to be humble, but we also want to adopt an attitude that, um, again, as Christians, that we should be open to what science has to say and we shouldn't be afraid of it. But having said that, then, I think it's important that uh, whenever we get information, we we look to see if there's other perspectives, other sources of information, and try to consume as much as we can from different perspectives and, and then do the best job we can to weigh those different perspectives uh, where we look to see which, uh, which scientific claim integrates with Scripture and, and which claims don't integrate with Scripture. And if a claim doesn't integrate with Scripture, I don't think we're obligated as Christians to accept that. Thank you so much. We are on air with Dr. Fazil Rana, and he's sharing with us from his book, Who Was Adam? And we encourage you to uh, put it and get in your library and read it. Uh, it's very important information for we as believers dealing with uh, biology and what God has created. My next question um, deals with, there's a passage in your book where you talk about Turkana Boy. Uh, why did you find it necessary to include this in the book, and uh, what argument were you trying to make? Yeah, well, you know, this particular fossil find is a rather remarkable find. It's uh, of, a, of a specimen known as Homo erectus. 
and it's a, it's a perfectly complete skeletal system, which is remarkable because typically what's found is just, you know, usually a few teeth and parts of a skull and parts of a jawbone. It's very rare that you get much beyond that when you find a fossil remains. And so this is a highly unusual fossil specimen. Uh, but it, the reason I discussed the Turkana boy is because, again, it represents Homo erectus, which many people view as a transitional intermediate leading to modern humans. They view that as part of that human you know, ascent of man, uh, the human evolutionary ascent of man. And so in that particular chapter in the book, what we wanted to do is show that there were significant biological differences between Homo erectus and modern humans, that there are differences in the way that this creature developed. It developed much more like an ape than it did like humans, and that, uh, that its behavior was crude, much more like an ape than like a modern human, and that to place it as kind of an intermediate between the very first hominin and modern humans is really uh, an injustice. It really belongs more grouped with ape-like creatures than with modern humans. And so the point was that this is oftentimes, again, touted as evidence for human evolution, but when you view this creature from a biblical framework, uh, its properties, its characteristics are consistent with, with what we would expect as Christians looking at the hominid fossil record. Thank you. Um, so in terms of fossils, um, what is the earliest human uh, fossils we have to date um, to kind of buttress our ar- argument that uh, God uh, created us the way that we are and that we didn't evolve to become the way we are now? Well, this is, I think, one of the areas that to me is most exciting in anthropology is that we have come to recognize that modern humans, that, that uh, 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 us, human beings, <laughs> right. uh, didn't, you know, didn't appear until thousands of years ago, not a couple of million years ago, as the evolutionary paradigm would claim. Uh, but what's also interesting is that we note that when modern humans appear on the scene, there's a sudden explosive appearance of very sophisticated behavior. Mm. We can tell from the archaeological record that the very first humans were making very sophisticated tools, were engaged in very sophisticated hunting practices, uh, were uh, uh, making music and art and displaying evidence for what's called symbolism. And no other creature prior to the appearance of modern humans displays anything like that. It, it's called the sociocultural Big Bang. Out of nowhere is this incredibly sophisticated behavior that shows up. Uh, and again, it shows up in conjunction with the appearance of the very first modern humans. And, and so t- that, that kind of a discovery, I think, really is very difficult to square with any kind of evolutionary framework that expects the gradual emergence of sophisticated behavior. Instead of seeing that gradual emergence, we see this explosive appearance. And so if you think about it, if human beings are made in God's image and we're uniquely made in God's image, and our appearance on earth is a creation event, what would you expect to see? (laughs) I would say a sudden explosive appearance of behavior that seems to be unique to humans, that's consistent with what we would expect if humans truly did bear uh, the image of God. My next question has to do with a popular topic, and I say popular because... Uh, many of us now are familiar with the acronym DNA, 
And can you tell us how DNA uh, supports the argument for an intelligent designer? Well, yeah, sure thing. Uh, first of all, I mean, DNA is a, a, a molecule that con- contains information. It's an information storage molecule. And uh, our common experience is that information comes from a mind. So the fact that we see that DNA harbors information indicates that it, you know, it must be the work of a mind. But what's even more mind-boggling is that the way that information is organized is the same way that we would organize information. So, for example, uh, just in recent years, uh, computer scientists and biochemists have discovered that the way in which the cell's machinery manipulates DNA is identical to how a computer system functions. Mm. And that's mind-boggling. And, in fact, um, it turns out that 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 similarity is so profound that uh, people are literally building prototype computers now using DNA and the and the machinery in the cell that operates on DNA. And these are incredibly powerful computer systems that may represent a new wave of technology in the near future. Amazing. And so the, the fact that we see DNA having these properties, to me, suggests it's the work of a mind. And, and of course, DNA figures very prominently in the human origin story uh, because it turns out that looking at certain types of DNA... Uh, we can trace the origin of humanity uh, back to its ancestry. And, it, and it, uh, using a type of DNA called mitochondrial DNA uh, and looking at its variation throughout populations on the planet, it turns out that everybody traces an origin back to a single ancestral sequence of DNA uh, that uh, indicates that we all came from a single individual, a female individual, mm. in fact, dubbed mitochondrial Eve in the scientific literature. And so when Genesis 3.20 says Adam named his wife Eve, she would become the mother of every living person, that literally is a true statement. And then when it comes to Y-chromosome DNA, uh, every man on the planet can trace an origin back to a single ancestral sequence that likely corresponds to a single male individual dubbed Y-chromosome Adam in the scientific literature. And so DNA not only points to the idea of design, but when we look at the way DNA is distributed among human population groups, it, it, it has a pattern that is, that is consistent with what we'd expect if the biblical account of human origins was true. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Rana, I really appreciate you being on Sound Reasoning. Uh, we enjoyed ourselves so much that we run out of time. <laughs> but uh, I would love to invite you to come back at another time to uh, continue our discussion. So thank you for being on Sound Reasoning, and we will be in touch. That was Dr. Uh, Fazil Rana uh, from Stand to uh, Reason to Believe uh, Ministries, and uh, you can actually reach them at reasons.org. And if you do, uh, they have free um, information for you to download uh, regarding this discussion as well as uh, other information that may be pertinent in relation to faith and science particularly from a Christian perspective. So, yes, you can go to uh, reasons.org and get a free CD or download an MP3. And as always, if you would, consider being a sponsor of Sound Reasoning. And may God bless you and keep you while you defend the gospel. Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. 
It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1.9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy message as has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org. Have you ever attempted to read the entire Bible? Did you do it, or did you only make it part way? I'm John Stonge, and I host a podcast that will make it possible for you to make it through the entire Bible, one chapter at a time. I've been hosting the Chapter a Day Audio Bible Podcast since 2015, and every single day of the week, I read one chapter of Scripture, then follow that up with a time of prayer. And if you're looking for daily insights and inspiration directly from God's Word, I hope you'll give the Chapter a Day Audio Bible a listen. You can find it at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.